My name is Michael Lane. I'm the president of Lishport Group. Tonight we have a terrific guest, and we've got uh, a bunch of stuff going on. Um, I'm pretty happy about how things are starting. You know, we've been doing this for a little over two months now, and we've had some terrific guests like Dr. Andrew Aldrin, Professor at Everett Riddle. We've had um, Greg, Dr. Greg Autry is scheduled soon. We've had James Burke, the uh, executive director of the Mars Society, Laura Forsick. So we've had some pretty terrific guests. I'm pretty happy about that. So thank you folks for being a part of that. A couple of weeks ago, I dissected a new national policy on that came out of the White House, which was pretty interesting. Going forward, we've got James Burke coming back uh, next week. We've got Doug Plata, uh, a new uh, with a with a new space uh, member organization. We've got uh, Hal Fulton coming in with a new space membership organization, advocacy organization. Yeah, it's been pretty exciting. We're doing this twice a week now, Mondays and Wednesdays, and we usually start it with a guest. It's usually a, a back and forth between our guests. Sometimes we've tested the water with uh, another format of just uh, reviewing the news, and sometimes we've tested the format of looking at national space policy. But tonight, I'm really, really excited to bring in Dr. Robert Subrin. He is the founder of the, I think it's now 26-year-old Mars Society. Is it Mars Society 26 years old, sir? Our society is 24 years old. 24. Founded in sure. 98. Sir, do you have a way that you can increase your microphone? It's a little on the quiet side. Sir, uh, the way we usually do this is we start with about 10 minutes of background, a little bit about your personal story, not so much the professional side, but just how did you get here in the first place? And then we'll spend some time talking about uh, the Mars Society, and then we'll focus in in the last maybe 20 minutes on the money, the finance, the capitalization of space. So I'm really excited to hear a bit about your personal story. We already have some questions from the audience that uh, I'm looking forward to sharing. So can you give us, you know, it's funny, sir. There are so many people new to this field, new to this industry, fans coming on board that have really just started. So even though you've been at this for a long time, even though I've been at this for a long time, I find it very helpful for people to get background and you know the history of where we are, which is one of the reasons, by the way, we brought in Dr. Roger Lanius as NASA's historian and the Smithsonian's uh, curator, because I think it's really important to give the background and the, the history of where we are. So could you give a little bit of background about who you are, how you came to this? I was born in 52. So I was five when Sputnik, to the adults, uh, Sputnik 9, because it meant the Soviets could hit us. To me, as a child, it was absolutely, because I was already reading science fiction. Was early. And what Sputnik was that all these stories about space travel, and I wanted to be part of it, and my parents encouraged my agents. My father got me a telescope. I could draw things at the moon and so forth. And a little later, I got into rockets and stuff, and... I learned all the science. So there I was growing up in the 60s, you know, nine when Kennedy gave the speech. 
70, and, you know, we were going to the moon by 1970, Mars by 1980, Alpha Centauri by the year 2000. I was all in. We did, of course, realize it's the first point in that program. We did make it to the moon. The next administration then basically uh, called, uh, they canceled NASA's plans to go to Mars. She canceled NASA's plans in college in the early 70s. Now, and part of the first generation of my family to go to college. You know, the idea of going to college was to have a trip made and, you know, the real world got to me. It's fine to want to be a space explorer when you're 12 years old, but now you're growing, got to get a trade. And the space program basically retracting, uh, at least in, in the most visible ways. And so I so, said, oh, uh, I do a lot of science. Got myself certified began to teach secondary. And I did that on and off for about seven years. Three, um, living in northern Manhattan and teaching in Brooklyn and commuting in a nice subway in the morning and the evening and reading novels by Herman Melville about sailing the South Sea. Am I doing here? You know, I didn't sign up for this. And uh, this thing called graduate school. Engineer if I went to graduate school because my, my undergraduate education. So I to graduate school. I majored in nuclear engineering because that fusion power was going to be the the most important thing to happen in the remaining part of it. So while I'm doing that, and I also brought space because there was an overlap in the classes. Uh, people my own age, my own generation, uh, graduate students, they were in Colorado, but you know they had started holding these conferences called the Case for Mars. So they were saying, weren't we supposed to go to Mars after the moon? You know. This is the kind of space program we should have. I certainly agree with that. So I went to their third conference, which was in 87, and 1,000 people. Thomas Paine, who had been NASA administrator when we landed. This was it. I made them uh, leading the program in Mars mission design at Marietta, learned Colorado. Met him, made contact, got his resident. He eventually got hired to do preliminary design of interplanetary mission. Doing that, that I came up with this plan known as the Mars Directive. And our engineer named David Baker, as in 89, had come out for the, what was called the Space Exploration Initiative, back to the day. That NASA basically sabotaged it by, rather than concise plan to realize that goal, they basically used the nominal imperative of going to Mars to hang all ornaments and basically designed the most complicated mission plan they possibly could in order to program mission critical, which is the exact opposite of the correct way to do engineering. Saw that. They realized that if that's where the matter was left, mission initiative, and a number of us engineers pushed that point with them, and they established this team and scenario plans. One was our Mars direct plan. There were two others. And the Martin people managed not to try to reconcile the plans to come up with a company party uh, because you couldn't. You couldn't. The, behind the plans was, was totally different. And we just floated it clear that Mars direct had most chance, most radical break with the existing thinking, and, and it immediately became extremely conjoined out of opposition. Eventually, when well, Mike Griffin, who he became associate of space exploration, much later on he became an administrator, but this associate administrator. Exploration, he heard about it, he had me come in and brief. He then told me to go back to Johnson's band with this time the boss telling him, you got to listen to this guy. Came up with their own version of Mars Direct. It didn't completely satisfy me. It was uh, dips, more equipment, more of everything required three launches permission instead of two.
but it was the same basic idea direct launch to mars no on over to martian resources starting on the first mission long duration stays on mars the principles of mars direct was just somewhat less and they costed it out that is a whole program based on this mission architecture costed the 90-day report as the official response to the bush's space exploration is they dollars they costed this out of 55. that was using the same costing models now we're in 1994 and newsweek is sniffing around for a story and they heard about this and it was the covers of, we went to the moon now we should go to the next place and there's a plan to at the cover story of newsweek on the 25th anniversary of apollo and that was cool a lot of contents and one of them I'm sitting at my desk at Martin and this woman's voice, and she says, Hi, I'm a literary agent. Have you ever thought of writing a book? Spy novel, I couldn't get it published. And she said, Were you ever a spy? I said, No, very agent. Well, you are an astronautical engineer, and I am a literary agent, and if you publish. And thus was born the book, uh, The Case of Mars. Came out in 96. Uh, it was a tremendous success. Uh, and through four printings and two months all selling out, and we went to soft cover over 100. I got 4,000 letters, uh, a few emails. But mostly actual stamplets. Actually, what that looks like. The people in all kinds of places. There were engineers at JPL and astronauts and Johnson. But there were 12-year-old kids in platoon and stockbrokers and a guy running the opera in New York City and the banker in Paris, the Congressional Medal of Honor, taking on a Japanese carrier in World War II. And this incredible assortment of people who had responded to this was an incredible Iran. And, and they said all kinds of things. But you see, behind everything they said, there was one, one real question, which was, how do we make this happen? Just to verify, you said this was 1994 this was happening. Well, 94 was Newsweek, the book. Yeah. Came. So I went to the other Mars house, store and so forth. And I said, look at this. Look at this. We could pull these people together. We'd have a, so we called the founding convention of the Mars Society in Boulder in 98, 700, the New York Times and the Washington Post and the BBC and other. We came out of the conference with an organization to do three things, spread the vision political work to defend and expand the existing Mars projects of our own, of which the most important and best known is our building of the uh, search station and then the Mars Desert Research Station, in which you could on Earth. This was an idea. It wasn't an original idea with us. This idea had been around since the 60s, but that's kind of an obvious idea. But we actually need that crew number 269 from the Aerospace Corporation Station right now, as we speak. And, uh, we're doing all kinds of things spent there, by the way, uh, in the near future. But we've dug a camera team out there to the desert, and they have photographed several square kilometers and sophisticated it as a virtual reality landscape. That is, several square of the desert near our station is now in a virtual reality. Is we're going to do an exercise, possibly at the Seattle Science Center, if not there, then where we go there for a weekend and with the reality gear. Guests are on walk around in the desert in virtual reality, not at Maple Leaf Fine Arts, but actual the terrain that's really there, they'll be walking around it, the same related astronauts walking around the very same terrain. So they'll be kind of like ghost companions, and they'll be able to say, hey, you know that rock over there? That looks like you go take a hammer to it. Let's take a sample. And what we're is demonstrating a mode of exploration for NASA to actually do on the moon and Mars with robotic rovers, and it could eventually be done in conjunction with, and it's a way to enormously expand the participation, democratize it, if you will, instead of there being perhaps a hundred people from all the science teams involved into thousands. I, I I love the Mars Desert Research Station. I've just posted links to MDRS 
at the Marsh Society. I don't think you know, I went out there uh, not as a participant, but we took our, uh, our robots and our balloons out there. Gosh, it would have been with Atlanta, Georgia Tech, a crew from Georgia Tech out there, where we put our balloons up and use it as a comms relay. And uh, this was early, early days of GIS mapping. This would have been maybe 2004 and 2005. I'm a big fan of MDRS. I, I have been for a long time. MDRS came in on our first motorized EV uh, north of the Hab, and then we climbed this little hill, and from this little hill we could see this, and we said, oh, that'd be an interesting place to explore. So we went over there, we climbed down into the can, extreme athletic climb, but it was something a wheeled robot couldn't do. It was a two-meter this little canyon, and we're there exploring around, and eventually I find this very curious with Jen Hellman, who was a that time a graduate student in geology, and now she did some ask. This looks like dinosaur bone. Did it happen? She thin sliced it, and sure enough, it was dinosaur bone, and we reported it to Bureau of Land. 2007, people from the Burpee Paleontological Organization contact the BLM and say, Is anybody over there found any dinosaurs? People found a fossil of these GPS coordinates. So they went there and they dug a place up. It's the largest find of dinosaur fossils in North America since dinosaur national. And it was done by us in sim, that is, wearing some under the same constraints we'd face on Mars. And I could tell you for a fact, because I was there, no robot, no robotic rover would have even found the canyon, let alone get down each way. So this is the kind of exploration that human explorers can do. Yeah, that's uh, that's amazing. Um, obviously, I'm a big fan of sending people out there. I don't, you know, robots are helpers. Robots are early Vanguard, Vanguard missions. But at the end of the day, if we're not sending people out there, and ultimately, if we're not having children out there, we're just camping. So camping is fun. I like camping, but I don't think that's what you signed up for. That's not what I'm signed up for. And robots are going to always be around. They're certainly very important, but it's no surprise that there's limitations to what they can do. And I don't think it's every day you get to find a dinosaur bone or uh, a whole dig site. I think that's pretty rare, but pretty, pretty amazing. Let me ask, because there's a couple of questions coming in from the audience here, and I know we're going to meander a little bit. I want to make sure we cover some of the, the questions. Uh, you were talking about uh, Mars Direct. Doug Plot is asking what the status is given the advent of Starship. Now, I want to talk about Starship in a lot of detail tonight, so if you want to give a short answer and we can come back to it, mm -hmm. or we can just draw, jump straight into it. Or do you want to stick with Mars Desert Research Station and answer a different question? Which way? Well, well you know, Mars Society has projects, but I think actually the most effective work we've done is just simply spread the vision. And we accrue to its banner the forces necessary for its realization. And among those to buy the vision, Elon Musk. Uh, and accomplishments are result. Uh, but we definitely had a role in helping him. And so oh, he created SpaceX in the Hunchback Factor 5 after it was stagnant for 40 years from 1970s, $10,000 kilogram to orbit, steady as a rock. Now it's gone down to two things. Successful, which is a fully reusable launch vehicle. The Falcon is partially reusable. It has uh, five times the lift capability of the Falcon. Then they'll probably cut it by another factor of five or so. The reason why it's not 
just to make money already have. It's to make humanity to her by settling Mars. To the Starship uses methane oxygen propellant, which is the propellant I specified for the Earth return vehicle and Mars directs propellant to make on Mars out of carbon dioxide and water, which is what is available. It's actually the second best propellant there is after hydrogen oxygen and much easier to so Starship uses methane oxygen in his mission architecture. Not exactly the same architecture, but it's a variant of Mars Direct. It, once again, it's direct launch to Mars. There's no on-orbit assembly to refuel the Starship. Then direct flight to Mars on Direct's mission and refueling on Mars with propellant made from local resources for direct flight back mission architecture. Uh, NASA, without very strong presidential leadership of a kind that, frankly, we haven't had it, not only the president, but without Stratus with a bipartisan public spirit, have right. attacked since sixty. The the government can't lead this, but he's leading. I think Starship makes it to orbit next year and is coming to orbit frequently in twenty twenty. President elected and they're gonna look at this thing at a reality that we're living in in twenty twenty fully reusable vehicles flying up and down to orbit with Saturn five class capability but three percent and they have the capability of coming back with the propellant made on Mars. If that is, the, whoever's elected is going to turn to his or her advisors and say, look, here's this character who wants to go on Mars. He's got but together with him. Could we uh, have people on Mars before by the end of my second term? And the answer is going to be yes. Well, will it cost a trillion dollars? No, it probably could be done within NASA's existing budget. There's a bunch of stuff he doesn't have. We can do well with him. We can do this thing. Well, then we're going to do this. So by making it practically, he's going to make it so. That's not a, there's a lot of things that could throw that off, including, you know, Taker and his constantly skating close to the edge of the ice and. He could fall off the edge, in which case it won't. But he's already proven a point, which is that it's a well-led entrepreneurial team to do things that were previously thought that only the governments, and not only that, do them in one-third of the time at one-tenth of the cost, and even do things that they deemed impossible, like reusable. But, and and he's already being emulated, and not just by others and Branson and so forth, but uh, by working engineers to manage to mobilize investors in his lab, New Zealand company, no less. I mean, New Zealand reached orbit and they're about to send probes to Venus and Mars through entrepreneur. Musk has already changed the picture here. This will, SpaceX is the one that pulls it off, but it's SpaceX should 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 not the banner and carry it. I, I like your idea. You know, you surprised me maybe two months ago when you, uh, when on a different show, maybe three months ago when you were on a different show with us and you were talking about how. 2024 is an election year. Everybody knows that. But the crossover between SpaceX's capability is really probably being showcased at that point. I mean, there's a good chance they're going to launch a demonstration mission either the end of this month or early next month. And that should tell us whether or not, if the FAA and EPA approve their launch licenses, they they probably are going to launch in the next two weeks, six weeks. We don't really know for sure. But that will demonstrate some pretty significant capabilities. And we all know that the SpaceX team has no problem crashing and burning for the sake of science. And so if that happens, that's okay. We all, we all know that that's their mode of operation. But the, the convergence between 2024 for an election year and 2024 of having constant, regular, reliable, reusable massive capacity to and from space. That was pretty interesting. So I'd like you to kind of 
expand on that. Let's pull out your crystal ball and tell me what you think 2023 and 2024 look like. And then how do we get from that point to a landed mission within two terms? I really want to dig into how do we get to a landed mission within two terms? I believe that this winter, uh, the Ukraine will expel the Russian invasion for at least this active war will end. But what will have been made clear here is the importance this is actually a space Ukraines are winning the space assets, space based reconnaissance, space farming, uh, space based navigation that guides precision guided. Okay. I, I believe that war justifies the entire creation of U.S. Space Force. That's my own opinion. But although we already had military space program, it was yeah, in the era. Yeah. Okay. And there's should be a separate service. I, I think. There's arguments pro and con. I, I mean, but the, but anyway, th this will make it clear and everybody, therefore, what a tremendous asset to the country. They're launching Falcons now at a rate of one a year. That's what more than what the shuttle dreamed it could do, but could not do. Actually doing it. And the, if you add on the war between major powers right now, space asset, whoever, and the, in any war, someone's going to destroy your space asset, put more up. And that launch capability is decisive. And uh, this is going to be another reason why the, the people, the, the very serious people, grown-ups, best possible space program in this country. And that means we have to have exploration because that's how you're going to get millions of youth to want to become an aerospace engineer. Other kinds of scientists, in fact. I mean, it's going to lift all our boats. Uh, Apollo, um, we doubled our science and engineering graduates in the 60s. It's in every field and in some areas... Apollo made science the great adventure and youth love this adventure. Okay. But this is going to make it clear to all the most serious people that preeminence in space, British Empire, the control of the sea, and what was the past World War II control of the air, control of space is everything. And go beyond that because um, with Starship or similar vehicles, SpaceX emulators, it's going to become possible to settle. We're going to become interplanetarization, an interplanetary culture. It's going to drive innovation like nothing we've ever seen before in history. I mean, the American frontier, American frontier culture, during the 19th century, you had tremendous labor shortage on the frontier and therefore a drive, which means public education. It means a culture of invention, magazines like Popular Science, Popular Mechanics, just a whole people that are geared up for racing for patents is kind of a sport, a sport with the big. But Edison, the Wright brothers, these culture, which is tremendously uh, progressive, and by progressive, I mean not in this technological sense, and it will open the door to it. I 100% agree. So let's focus in on 2023. You said that, you know, you think that the Ukrainians will push back the Russians, I sure hope that's true. I think it's also true. That changes the kind of political landscape. Presuming we don't have a great war where the Russians have the Chinese and like there's not, it's not a, it's not a domino effect and things kind of normalize out. I don't know what that looks like. But then you've got SpaceX, which is obviously the, the kind of front runner right now, but you've got, oh no, I, mean, I think the United States has eight orbital class 
companies. ULA, Sierra Space is close, Astro's close, Blue, Rocket Lab. There's about six or seven or eight American companies. I think there's one organization in Europe that can that can get orbital Ariana space. And then there's India. Then you know, there's there's a few there are a few organizations that can do this, but it's not just SpaceX that's doing reusable rocketry. That's they're 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 the ones that are in the vanguard, but they're not the only game in town anymore. So then fast forward to 2024, we've got demonstrated capacity, demonstrated capability, massive launch, interest, right? I think that's what you talked about. You know, the, maybe the biggest impact of the Mars Society is just building global interest in this. What do you imagine happens in the White House? Whomever wins, red or blue, whomever wins, what what do the what do you think those conversations have to look like at the White House to say, okay, how do we put a crew together, you know, something by twenty twenty eight and something else by twenty thirty two? People on the ground by twenty thirty two. What do you think those steps have to look like? Because I really don't know. How about the technical steps? I think these are probably more budgetary that and policy that leads to technical development, right? Well, look, okay, first of all, all this nonsense. I mean, just look at the kind of money we were able to put into action when COVID hit. Right, uh, yeah. You want $2 trillion? How about $6 trillion? Yeah, okay. here's some more money. Some they, more money. We decide to do something, and preeminence in space going to be clear that it is a matter of national survival. It's going to be as important to the United States as preeminence at sea, and it's going to be very clear. And, and so it's going to be important with shapes the whole climate in which you conceive of not just of the military space programming and that, but it's important. Just the British Navy, that was important to the British government, was the British Merchant Marine and the, 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 the and, and, and British explorers and, and, and so forth. And we're going to become a space-faring nation in a very real sense. And SLS, just look up at the booster, just, and it worked. Starship's going to be a heavy lift booster. Falcon Heavy is a semi-heavy, heavy is a semi-heavy, and that'll be flying probably in 2024. So Rocket Lab's heavy, it's semi-heavy, it's not a true heavy, but it's a semi-heavy booster. We're going to have all these capabilities. So looking at the Mars Exploration Program, by which I mean the robotic program, clean missions that are limited to one-ton payloads on Mars. We're going to have the capability of landing 10 very quickly. So that robotic exploration Instead of landing a single rover, we'll land a platoon of them. It'll be like Normandy, be plank will come down and that's crap. And at all the ground rovers and the helicopters and this, and you'll have robotic expedition. will enormously enhance our uh, pure scientific exploration capability, but it also will access capabilities needed for human missions. So when the first humans land on Mars, they're going to be landing on Mars and shanding eight or 10 or 12 times. And they'll be landing orbit, which perhaps robotic constructors that will even build up a significant amount of infrastructure, some plants and in situ repellent manufacturing and habitations check-in. So I, I think this is what's going to happen. And I think the goal, due to the nature of our political situation. Outstanding. I can imagine uh, what those conferences in the White House would look like. You know, because, you know, most people don't know what the heck we're talking about, right? They don't have the background. They don't have the knowledge. Does, does kind of, Mar I'm going to call it Mars Direct 
1.0, does it need to be a 2.0 to take into account Starship? Does there need to be kind of a... If Starship becomes... I, I wrote a paper on this a few years ago, you know, looking at using Starships. Now, I and I have a, a difference with... He wants to fly the Starship all the way to Mars, refuel it, and send it back. That's a suboptimal architecture. I think he wants to create a mini Starship to lift it to orbit and send the mini Starship to Mars. Because... About something about one thing, basically sized by itself to be the uh, reusable upper stage for a Falcon 9 combination. It'd be a fully reusable medium system. But the idea of sending it to Mars, or Mars, and it would be much easier to refuel to send home. That's for exploration. Now, for that settlement, settlement, then you send the big starships all the way to Mars, and you don't send them back. That is, a starship is terrific as a one-way starship on Mars. You got an apartment building on Mars. Okay. The, 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 but... It's not something you want to have to refuel to send back. So for the function of returning crews, now Musk says to me, he says, look, tell me why I need it. Tell me let, me, let me just like reiterate that. Musk says to you personally, you are having that conversation, right? I had that conversation. Yeah. Okay, I'm not having that conversation today, but I had that conversation. It says, tell me why I need it. Not why it would be good to have. Right. Tell me why I must have. Okay, because there's a lot of things that would be good to have. I says, that question is exactly the right question. It's the question NASA never, you tell them you don't need a lunar orbit gateway to go to the moon. And they say, but it might come in handy. There's a million things that might come in handy. And if you try to do them all, you'd never get to do the mission you're trying to do. But Musk is very focused on only doing what is necessary. Okay, because if you go with the big starship and you want to come back, you need five times the in-situ propellants, the power plant on Mars to drive it then you would need with a mini Starship. So the trade is either power system on Mars, then all you need is Starship, just one flight. A mini Starship, and then you don't need anywhere near it. Okay, that's the trade. Okay, and I guess it's because he, I work on in-situ propellant manufacturing things, that he knows all the problems in developing a fine system, all things in-situ propellant manufacturing. So the problem that each of us face seems big, which is seen at a distance. But I absolutely do agree with his fundamental position, which is don't tell me I don't absolutely need it. Perfect. Perfect. So, you know, this, uh, our program is primarily about the money, finance, and capitalization of space. We have about a little more than 10 minutes here. I want to make sure that we talk about some of that. You're at the White House. You've got your National Space Council out there. Your vice president's kind of paying attention. Everybody's giving that person some advice and some information. And, okay, there's this company out in California. Yep, they probably have some capabilities. What's the, what you know now that the commercial sector in space is arguably larger than the governmental sector in space. Uh, maybe the defense sector is a little bit bigger still, but... But the commercial sector is getting pretty good size now. They've got a lot of capabilities. They've got a lot of robustness and uh, redundancy. I apologize for the noise out there. I'll, I can't do anything about it. I'll mute in a moment. What do you think the budget comes in? Let, let's just let's just put a baseline of let's put let's put five people or ten people on the ground. Assume that we're going to have some beginnings of permanence. Whatever that means, you define it how you want. The beginnings of permanence, five to ten people crew, your deadline's 2032. 
how much is this going to cost and where do you think it's how does the commercial sector become a part of it and how much do they have to put it well the and the commercial sector is what's driving it that is this is only going to has musk is there saying look i've got the ship the, the uh you know i mean these people would tame to do something except that now the opportunity is going to be so clear that it's going to be compelling so you say how much it's going to cost nasa budget this year is like what 24 billion dollars or something i the nasa budget and the military space budgets are both going to occur crisis problem both increased by about that compared to where they are now for the same reason that you have a little part of the uh, military to one of the main parts uh and after world war ii and ever since it, it's going to be very essential it's going to be essential to our national to our economy and to our national but no, it's not going to cost a trillion dollars to go. That when Starship is flying, I mean, Starship flights are going to cost like 100. When you talk about takes five Starship flights to send us $500 million to send a Starship to Mars, and probably was two, so about a billion dollars to do the first human mission to Mars once the Starship exists. Uh, then further missions would be about 500 million using that architecture. Once again, it then only one starship launched to orbit is needed to send a small expedition. Starship is overkill for exploration. Although heavy with vehicles to send the other things that you can't beat it. Now you're talking about sending hundreds of dollars tomorrow, not ten. And Musk told me that he thinks it'll cost him ten billion dollars. And you know, he's not building a ship down there in Boca Chica. He's building a shipyard. He'll rate like one a month or Right. That's a super important point. Not just building one vehicle, but the factory to build a set of vehicles. Uh, he, his, uh, his stated goal is three flights a day, three flights a day with his, with thousand, a thousand flights a year. Well, what, what else? Well, okay. Whatever. It it's a gigantic number. No, even if it's only the same rate, he's actually accomplished the Falcons, which is one a week on right. orbit instead of 20. About the same cost to orbit as the current one. That's why I'm saying another factor of five reduction in cost. But anyway, he's talking about making these things. And by the Starship in this, I mean the actual upper stage Starship, not the super heavy. Because that never leaves Earth. It's the one that goes to Mars. Since they could make him for 10 million. So he probably willing to sell them for 20 and that and and here's the thing reusable spaceships means there will be used spaceships set that for a minute there's going to be used spaceships arrived okay the and you know right now new cars are pretty expensive but even people who don't have very much money can have it so they don't have to pay thirty thousand dollars for, for a, 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 a new car they can pick up and buy it on credit and and, and pay a hundred dollars a month or and and have wheels that's right the fact that, that there are used cars to meet, uh, everybody can have a car. Reusable vehicles like Starship, so good to travel. Well, let's say some people want to go on Mars, they pick up a used, uh, if you can, a Starship that's reached the end of its life on the Mecca City, the sold tells used for five. Okay, five million dollars divided by a hundred people is fifty thousand dollars a person and thing and fly them. That's a good business model. I like that. So you're talking about. You know, $50,000 is not chump change, but 
move, if someone wants to change their life, if someone wants to emigrate, it's the kind of money people uh, and do sell your house. Once there's a lot of used starships or empiricals running rep, then it, it will be possible for her and be driven from the bottom up. Amazing, amazing. I love that vision of where we're going. Let's swing it back to the Mars Society directly uh, as an organization. We're going to talk, we've talked to James Burke a little bit. We're going to talk to him again uh, next week. You know, I know that y'all have some fundraising plans coming up. You're trying to get your analog sites, the primary one, the MDRS upgrade, and then uh, the Flashline one really retrofitted. So in our, in our remaining four minutes, can you just talk about what your plans are, what your, what your financial requirements are, what you plan to do with it? Well, okay. Well, the, the Mars Desert Station will continue you and we're going to augment it with this virtual reality that I discussed earlier. But we do plan to send an expedition to the Arctic next. We're going to put out a call for volunteers. And it's going to cost a lot of money, so I don't want the crew it's just half of the money by organizing sponsorships. We're going to look to the crew. That's $120,000 worth of sponsorships, basically 20000 per person. I think it should be possible. Also, we're hoping that there will be companies that step forward that want to become sponsors at the station in depth. And then the station's called the Flashline Mars Arctic Research Station because for a company called Flashline, they donated 175 and named after them. Now, those naming rights only were for five years, in fact, since then. So they've gotten quite the bargain more than they paid for. And I'm not sure if Flashline is But they shouldn't have got their money's worth because there's hundreds of newspaper articles about that state. The price of you know a single page ad in a glossy magazine that people while they're sitting in the barber shop waiting for their turn, we're open now to someone else stepping up like that. The, and, and what would be the what would be the price tag for the naming rights? Do you know, or has that been decided? Is that public? It's not public. It's okay. but we'd be we'd be looking for substantial money. But but anyway, there there it is. So the publicly within a few days, people who heard it. All right. Well, with that, we're going to go ahead and uh, and wrap it up, Dr. Subrin. It's always a terrific uh, conversation with you. Really want to give you a shout out to, to you and to all the people that were at the Bar Society Conference uh, in Arizona a couple weeks ago. Terrific job. Fascinating content. For those in the Mars Society that are watching our show right now, you know, it was an honor for us, our team, to handle some of the digital side. Many of those videos from the event are going to be posted here in the coming weeks. We've already gotten the first batch still private. They're still private within the, the Mars Society YouTube channel, but we'll have, we'll have the rest of them up here very soon. Dr. Zubri, thank you so much, sir. Appreciate it. Have a great evening. I appreciate you taking the time out tonight. Bye-bye.